Thank you, Tommy. Good morning, church. What a privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, in my job, as Tommy mentioned, working with millennials, I was having a conversation with a young professional here in Indianapolis, and the topic of the rampant snarkiness and cynicism that pervades our culture came up. You know what I'm talking about. The cutting tone that people often take on social media, the general attitude of skepticism and negativity that just pervades all the communication and interaction that goes on in our world today. And I asked this person who happens to be very culturally aware what she attributes this to. Uh, what accounts for this, particularly among young people? And after a pause, she replied, you cannot trust people. No one keeps their promises anymore. So people are cynical. They're angry and they're hurt. We are all familiar with the reality of broken promises. A piece of technology says it will make your life simpler, easier, but it doesn't. A company commits to stand by their warranty, except when they don't. A politician, you knew I had to bring them up, right? A politician makes a myriad of promises during the campaign, only to leave them unfulfilled once in office. Then there are the interpersonal kind of broken promises. I'll give you a call this week to see how you're doing, but your phone never rings. Hey, I'll be sure to pray for that, but you're never lifted up. I will reach out to you sometime this week to set something up, but nothing of the sort ever shows up in your inbox. A recent study found that more and more people are making promises that they never intend to keep because the actual act of committing to do something good for another person just makes them feel good. Making promises makes us feel good. Breaking promises doesn't even make us feel bad anymore. This has become standard operating procedure in our culture, and it's no wonder everyone is cynical and angry. You know what it's like to be on the receiving end of broken promises. It hurts. It's painful. Perhaps you felt the sting of an unfulfilled promise for a raise, a promotion, or a different job. Maybe a friend committed to be there and wasn't. And there are even some here this morning who are familiar with the deep anguish associated with the betrayal of the most sacred of all promises, the marriage covenant. The landscape of broken promises in our world can leave us hurt and cynical. But if we actually look deep down into our soul, we realize that we just haven't been on the receiving end of broken promises. We've actually been the giver at times of broken promises. The reality for all of us is that we know the pain that comes from broken promises of others, and we too have failed to keep our word. Promise breaking is something 
we're all too familiar with. How can we forgive and heal when people break their promises to us? How can we be forgiven when we realize that we are promise breakers? And how can we become promise keepers? Well, the Lord Jesus has two points of instruction for us in the Sermon on the Mount that lay the foundation to answering those questions. We will consider each of those points in turn as we look at our passage as it's been read in Matthew chapter 5. As we begin, let me take a moment to remind us of how we got to this spot. Matthew is intent on demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the ruler of the kingdom of God. But not only that, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Everything that the Old Testament anticipated and promised, it's wrapped up and completed in Jesus. If the Old Testament's the arrow, Jesus is the target at which it aims. And with that backdrop, Jesus ascends this mountain and begins to teach what it's like to live as countercultural kingdom citizens. And he did that in our passage by addressing the very important topic of promise keeping. So the first point of instruction Jesus has for us in our passage today is this. The king calls us to keep the biggest promise we will ever make. The king calls us to keep the biggest promise we will ever make. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus follows up on his teaching from the previous passage on adultery and lust with this conversation, with this teaching on divorce. Now before I begin, I must tell you, I approached this topic with a certain level of trepidation. Actually, when Tommy asked me to do this, I just thought, oh no, really? For you see, I know, for one, there are single people here today, and that addressing the topic of marriage for any length of time can leave some feeling alienated. That makes sense to me. Second, divorce is a controversial and complex topic, and I know that I will not be able to address every aspect of the, of the topic today. Third, this matter touches almost everyone in some way, and it's always associated with deep emotional pain. And I have no doubt that there are those here today who have suffered greatly because of divorce. I have no desire to unduly add to anyone's distress. Nonetheless, these are the teachings of our Lord. They are before us, and we all need to hear them. I certainly do. And so my aim is to, as accurately as possible, to consider Jesus' words and to do so in a sensitive way. So let's do that. Tommy mentioned last week that in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a particular rhetorical approach. You heard it said, but I say. You've heard this, but I'm going to tell you this. I call it the confront and call pattern. Uh, King Jesus first confronts erroneous misunderstandings of the Old Testament law, and then as he fills that in, 
he calls his people, he calls his people to a deep, heartfelt lifestyle in light of it. So in verse 31, he starts with confronting. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, there's a fair amount of history behind all this, so let's unpack it so we can be sure to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And we'll do that by rewinding all the way back to almost the very beginning in late Genesis chapter 2. Already God has created the man, he's just finished creating the woman, and he's brought the two together. And then in verse 24, there's a very interesting word change in the English translations that uh, takes place that signifies the significance of what's going on there. He stops referring to Eve as the woman and starts referring to her as the wife. And in verse 24, the narrator, uh, Moses, adds his sort of summary commentary on everything that's gone on in case it's sort of missed. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God creates Adam, God creates Eve. He brings them together. It's the first wedding ceremony in human history. And then he describes what it means, at least partially, to be married. You leave your respective families, you cling, you hold tightly to each other, and you become one flesh through the consummation of marriage in the sexual act. This is an institution created by God. It's not something humans thought up. And as much as our world would like us to believe, it's not some human social construct for convenience. One man, one woman for life joined by God, which is why Jesus says later in Matthew, speaking to this passage, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I had a seminary professor who defined marriage this way, and I've kept it with me uh, ever since. He said, marriage is an institution created by God that a man and woman enter into by making a public commitment one to the other and before God. Marriage at its root is a promise. A promise to the spouse and a promise to God. Think about the last wedding ceremony you were at. Working with college students for many years, I had the privilege of being at many and actually officiating a lot. And the high point of any marriage ceremony, right? The exciting moment that everything kind of leads up to is what? The exchange of vows and rings. Because then what? Then you get to kiss, right? But it's at that public promise that's at the heart of this. Well, the problem is, Right after this wedding ceremony in Genesis 2, we get Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve rebel against God, and their actions have negatively impacted marriages ever since. 
In Genesis 3, we're told that guilt and shame, as well as conflict now, accompany every person into marriage. And because of the reality of sin and the potential devastation that certain sins can bring to the marriage bond, God graciously in the Old Testament law allows, permits divorce. So fast forwarding in time to Deuteronomy 24, the law that God gave through Moses makes this allowance for divorce in the event the husband finds something indecent in his wife. And it's this passage in Deuteronomy 24 that's in view here in our passage in Matthew. There's a lot going on here, and I'm not going to be able to thoroughly answer all the questions that are raised, but essentially, Deuteronomy has already addressed what happens when one member of the family is, is, uh, is caught in divorce, and so in, in, in adultery. And so this indecent thing isn't most likely adultery per se, but it's probably some pretty egregious sexual act bordering on that is most likely what's going on here. In any event, what you have happening is that there's a gracious provision that God has made here in Deuteronomy that now fast-forwarding to Jesus' day, certain religious teachers are taking hold of, twisting, and allowing for divorce on all different types of reasons, on different types of occasions. They, they are essentially, through their, their teaching, giving men freedom to divorce their wives for a whole myriad of reasons that Moses and ultimately God never intended back in Deuteronomy. And this is what Jesus is confronting. This is what it is. Easy divorce. Easy divorce. Easy promise-breaking is what Jesus is confronting in this passage. Sadly, our culture is not that different. About 45% of married couples in the United States today divorce. And while we don't have some extra religious tradition, some scribal tradition whispering in our ear that easy divorce is okay, we still today have the clarion call of our culture saying essentially the same thing. One of the most oft-used reasons in our world today, particularly as I work with young people, for divorce is this. You're familiar with it. It's the you should be happy reason. If you are no longer happy in your marriage, why stay? Just get out. A colleague, a former colleague of mine, a respected leader, long, fruitful ministry, you know where this is going, he made a series of wrong, sinful choices that ultimately were exposed and exploded. And when confronted about his unfaithfulness to his wife, he said, she no longer makes me happy, but I found someone who does. God wants me to be happy, right? 
In a sense, this is what Jesus is confronting. Because people in his day were using this indecent thing as an excuse to let their wives go. And in those days, they were the ones that held all the legal power, so to speak. And it seems that what was happening is perhaps they didn't like the way their wife looked after a few years, or even history records for us, they didn't, uh, at least in one instance, a man didn't like the meal that his wife prepared. And so he lets her go with the certificate of divorce, and Jesus is confronting that. Our culture doesn't value the promise that underlies marriage, but Jesus does. And so, as a result, King Jesus calls his subjects, us, to a different, better course. In verse 32, he says, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As I've implied, uh, this sort of easy divorce was what was going on. Jesus is saying to these people, you are justifying divorce on all the wrong reasons. You're saying there's sin there, and so you're letting your wife go, when in point of fact, there is no sin. And actually, what you're causing is her to sin by your actions, and then when you remarry, which is ultimately what you really want, you just want to remarry somebody else, you're also committing adultery. And so Jesus is saying, I want to be very clear. The only ground for divorce is sexual unfaithfulness in the context of marriage. The sexual sin cuts so much at the heart of the oneness in marriage, it can produce such levels of hurt and such deep wounding that God in his graciousness affords the offended spouse the option of walking away from a marriage bond that's already been broken by the offender. Now let me be clear, it's only in the case of marital infidelity and it's only the offended party who can do this. Certainly, it's an option open to them, it's not a command. And I'm aware that the elders of our church have had to walk through these kinds of situations with people. Sometimes, the offending spouse is unrepentant, and this moves forward. But other times, the offender is repentant, and reconciliation and trust, the marriage bond, can be rebuilt, which is what God ultimately would want. So Jesus here in this passage calls us to marital faithfulness, to be marriage promise keepers. We're told in Malachi, he hates divorce. It's so important that we keep attentive to our promises in marriage because it, it shows something to the world about Jesus' marriage to us, his people. As we show the world what it's like to be faithful in marriage, even though marriage can be hard, we're saying something to the world about how God loves a people who are really hard to love. And doesn't our world need that? That's one of the reasons it's so important to him. Now, I know marriage can be difficult 
it can be hard. And I know that there are some here this morning that find their marriage to not be a very happy place. I, I don't want to downplay that at all. And there are times that our world and certainly maybe even our own souls tell us, I might just be happier someplace else. And I want to say, it's just not true. That's a lie. I know a couple from my youth. I was around them a lot growing up, and even then I saw the difficulties they were having. The husband was aloof, always working. He was cold, disconnected, demanding, even sometimes mean. And while he was not breaking the promise to be sexually faithful to his wife, he was breaking other promises he made on his wedding day to his wife to love her like Christ loves the church. I think this happens a lot. And as you might expect, it was pretty demoralizing for this woman. She tried to address the problems graciously. She said, let's go see the pastor. Maybe he can help us. And he wouldn't. And this went on for years and years. And she prayed. And she kept respecting and loving. She wouldn't be a doormat. She would graciously say, you, you can't talk to me that way. But she kept her marriage promise. And even when others would say, get out, leave, you'll be happy some other place, she didn't. And I wish I could tell you that this is the have happily ever after kind of story. You know, things did get better to some extent, but not fully. We know what she would say. She would say, I know one day this will all be taken care of. What God asked me to do is to, to be faithful to my promise today, to love the best that I can. And you know what? There's the only place of true joy, if not happiness. I think she's right. I certainly don't stand up here this morning before you as the authoritative marriage expert or example. Just ask my wife. I have failed in so many ways to love. So what I share to you today, I, I have to hear myself. It's both very convicting as a husband and also very motivating as a husband. But there is one who is a marriage expert, and it's Jesus. And he's the perfect spouse. And he wants us to keep our marriage promises, the big ones and the small ones, because he keeps his marriage promise to us. Perhaps something I said this morning about this topic has raised some questions. Maybe it's left you confused. Maybe it stirred up a number of emotions. And I've talked to Tommy, and I know he would be more than happy to meet with you to discuss these things if something like that has surfaced. So we've seen Jesus' first point of instruction is that we are to keep the biggest promise we will ever make. His second point of instruction is this. We are to keep the big and the little promises we make every day. We are to keep the big and the little promises we make every day. First, he confronts, verse 32. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord 
what you have sworn. What's going on here is this seems to be a paraphrase of a number of Old Testament verses on the subject of taking oaths, of swearing things. Uh, And what seems to have happened is, again, these religious, certain religious uh, authorities have taken this teaching and have expanded on it and have kind of filled in uh, some of their thoughts, primarily related to the, the matter of justifying breaking oaths. So Jesus goes on in verse 34 to 30, uh, through 34 through 36 and says, hey, just do not take an oath. Don't take an oath by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even by your own head. And so what's Jesus getting at here? Well, it's important to recognize that in Jesus' day, an oath was a public declaration where a person evoked uh, a God, another person, maybe a person in greater authority or a greater object, something greater than themselves to assure someone of their truthfulness, particularly in a legal setting, but they were relatively common. And people had to do this because just like today, you couldn't always be sure if someone was telling the truth or not. Probably The closest parallel in our culture today is when you go in a courtroom and they hold out the Bible and you swear to tell the truth. That's kind of in the formal legal setting. But we'll also do it right in our daily activities. You'll hear someone say, and I swear on a stack of Bibles that what I'm saying is true. Right? It's it's sort of the same idea. I want you to be assured that what I'm saying is true. Now, were oaths bad in general? No, actually... God, in several places in the Bible, takes an oath. In fact, this is very important to the whole layout of the Bible. We call these oaths that he takes covenants. Jesus, even at his legal proceedings, uh, is sworn under oath, and he speaks under oath. So oaths, in general, are not bad. What Jesus is confronting here, though, is this practice of routine promise-making through an oath and promise-breaking of that oath. He's going after this decline in truthfulness. And so what they would do is, oh, you know what? Just swear by the temple. Swear by your head. Take an oath by the city of Jerusalem because as long as you do that and you don't swear by God, you don't really have to keep what you're saying. There's no consequence to your lying as long as you don't swear by God. Because if you swear by God, then you're going to bring his judgment. So it's okay. Break your oath. Just don't swear by God. So men and women were not keeping their word. Truthfulness was in decline. And really, right, this whole, this whole matter boils down to truthfulness. Because oaths were all about doing what you had said you would do, and what you said was true. And so even if we're not totally familiar with the concept of oath-taking on a pretty regular basis, we are really familiar, are we not, with the, 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 the topics of truthfulness and trustworthiness. And sadly, there's a decline in both in our culture. 
a Michigan State study, shout out to Eric, he's an alum, found that on average, Americans tell 1.6 straight out bold-faced lies every day. That is, they affirm X when X is false. You know the kind, right? The employee arrives late at work and says, I was late because traffic was bad, when a point of fact, they overslept. But then, it's not just the bold-faced lies that are on the rise. How about those efforts to conceal and shade the truth? Apparently, their prevalence has jumped dramatically over the last 40 years. Perhaps you're familiar with them this way. Gee, I would love to go, but I'll be out of town. Your spouse asks, what do you think of this, honey? How do you answer? Is it truthfully? That looks nice, doesn't it? Even though deep down, you don't think it does. How about fudging the numbers on the business report or the tax return? How about this? You always or you never do such and such. You know, those statements aren't meant to convey accuracy or truth as much as they are to win an argument, but they're still a statement, aren't they? Of truth? How about this one? It's only a little white lie. But King Jesus calls us to something else. He calls us to something different, something that would be radically countercultural in our world today. In verse 37, he says, simply let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let everything you say be truthful. Never affirm X if X is false. This means that as subjects of the king, we reject any sense of levels or degrees of truthfulness. This means that as followers of Jesus, we reject notions of rationalizing that lets us break our word or shade something. We let our yes be yes in the little things and in the big things as well. Now, I'm not saying you can never take an oath because we've seen God and Jesus take oaths. But rather, would we, would we be so characterized by truthfulness, we would never have to take an oath to substantiate our veracity. Tim Keller says that if we're subjects of his and we recognize him as king, then speak and act as if we're always under an oath to him. Speak and act as if he were right there, because he is. Boy, and this is, this is hard, isn't it? This is hard, because it costs so much sometimes to be truthful and to be faithful to our promises. Obeying Jesus' instruction here can be incredibly painful. It can cost us time and convenience. It can mean we pay more at tax time. It could cost us a job or a friendship. It might mean sacrificing our comfort or happiness. And I'll be honest, as a recovering approval seeker, this week has been so convicting for me 
being in this passage. There's stinging in my heart as I feel the conviction, and there's singing as I see what Jesus is calling me and us to. And what would that look like if we live that out? But how can we deal with the guilt that comes from the exposure of our sin? And how could we ever hope to meet that standard? Well, the answer is because King Jesus keeps his promises always. He keeps his promises always. During his ministry, Jesus repeatedly made a promise to his disciples. The son of man will suffer, die, and come back to life. And then one Passover, one Passover evening with his disciples, he told them, this cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant, the the promise, the pledge, sealed in my blood. Later that evening, he went on to feel the weight of that promise. For in the garden, in prayer, he shed blood because of the great cost of keeping that promise. And then the next day, He gave up even more blood and endured horrors beyond imagination because Jesus keeps his promises always. He let his yes be yes to the very point of death. Jesus keeps his promises always. And then he said he would come back to life having defeated sin, death, and the devil, who I might add, is the father of lies. He wants us to break our promises. Jesus defeated him by keeping his promise to come back to life. He made another promise to his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. He always keeps his promises. Because he keeps his promises, men and women, friends, we can be forgiven of our broken ones. Because Jesus told the truth, we can be forgiven of the times that we haven't. And because not even death could keep Jesus yes from being yes, we can say yes to forgiving the promise breakers in our own lives. Because Jesus kept his promise and came back to life, I have power to keep mine. Because he keeps his word and he's coming back, I have now motivation to keep mine. Because I know one day I will give an account and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Remember, the king calls us to keep the biggest promise we will ever make. And he calls us to keep the big and little promises we make every day. Because King Jesus is the ultimate promise keeper, we too can keep our promises.